15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on this, the Space Nuts podcast, episode 209. My name is Andrew Dunkley and with me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm quite well, sir. How are you? Quite well, too. I guess that more or less sums it up, doesn't it? And it's all you can yes. all you can ask. Not much more to say. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But uh, we carry on regardless, and uh, there's plenty to talk about again this week, including uh, an update on the Starlink satellite program, a uh, planet discovered by the University of Southern Queensland, but it's more about how they did it than the discovery itself that's uh, interesting. And we're going to follow up a story that seems to be doing the rounds, a collision between two black holes that looks to have created an explosion of light. That sounds uh, rather spectacular. Uh, we'll also tackle some audience questions about exoplanets. And uh, this, this one fascinates me, Fred. I hope you've done your homework. Quark matter and quark stars. <laughs> I, uh, I thought that was the stuff of myth, but we'll find out. Uh, but uh, that's all coming up. Uh, we, we'll start off, uh, Fred, with a, a look at the Starlink satellite program. There's an update there. This is, I think it is the, it's certainly the 10th launch of Starlink satellites, which takes the total up to something like 600 satellites in orbit. And, of course, um, this is the issue that has uh, got astronomers uh, hot under under the collar all over the world, both professional and amateur, because the of the amount of light that these um, spacecraft uh, reflect back from the sun. And uh, SpaceX have come to the party on this. They have um, been very concerned that that's the case, and so they've looked at how to mitigate this. And I think I'm right in saying that this the whole tranche of, and I believe it was 57 uh, spacecraft that were launched, uh, with probably mm. some other payloads in as well. These are 57 of the Starlink uh, satellites. Um, but this whole uh, tranche of them now impl- uh, uses what, um, what uh, SpaceX is calling, uh, well, they call the satellites the visor sats because they've got a visor, a sun visor, uh, to uh, stop the direct light of the sun illuminating the antennas of the spacecraft and hence, uh, you know, causing bright reflections or, or, or causing light pollution for astronomers trying to see the stars. Um, these apparently are made of a, of a foam material, uh, a, a dark uh, foam-like material that uh, has no um, effect on the radio signals that are being transmitted but will basically... Um, you know, prevent the, the, the or, or certainly reduce the amount of light that comes from each spacecraft uh, as it reflects sunlight. So it, their effect is yet to be seen. We might expect to see some observations of this tranche of 57 spacecraft going across uh, across the sky with their visors, and it'll be great if nobody sees anything. Um, so Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because in the past, people have uh, photographed these uh, lines of lights in the sky, and uh, we, we've had a few amateur astronomers' uh, messages to say that uh, they've had issue with satellites while trying to do um, astrophotography. Yep. 
And if indeed they have managed to come up with a solution for that, and we did talk about that, I think, last time, a few weeks ago, that they were considering this, uh, it will be um, just a, a fantastic effort. And, uh, and, and, and that, that's got to be a positive thing. Uh, very much so, yeah. So we'll we'll wait to see what the verdict is on that. It's um it's a good story, and um, well, I suppose we'll we'll know in the next little while. It won't take long. Shouldn't do. <laughs> Probably before this before this episode of Space Nuts hits the airwaves. Anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll... how long does it how long does it take for them to deploy fifty seven satellites? Uh, it's it's a pretty rapid process, and you know what what um, has has. Uh, uh, almost alarmed people in the past when they weren't aware of what was going on here is this stream of, uh, of up to 60 spacecraft in a line across the sky. Uh, very, yeah. very interesting stuff. Yes, that's what I've seen photos of, and it uh, it does sort of catch you off guard. And I, I've seen a few posts where people have said, what is it? What is it? Can someone tell me? And uh, and then there are others in the know that say, oh, that's SpaceX, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and... <laughs> And there it is. Uh, so uh, this time, perhaps no one will see anything. Wouldn't it be great if nobody saw anything? Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, all right, that's good news. Let's uh, let's move on to this planetary discovery by the University of Southern Queensland. Uh, I, I know the stories um, about maybe how they did it. But uh, do we know much about the planet at this stage? Yeah, we do. It's uh, it's a really interesting story, Andrew, because um, yeah, it's got a very strong Australian flavour. There is a strong um, exoplanet group at the University of Southern Queensland. People, most of them, I know pretty well um, because I've worked with many of them uh, before on um, you know uh, uh, the observatory in uh, in, uh, in at Siding Spring in New South Wales. The University of Southern Queensland has its own observatory. Uh, it's a place called Mount Kent. It's a dark sky site, which means that they'll be delighted that uh, that, that the SpaceX uh, satellites have been darkened because they, they would have certainly had interference from that. Um, it, it's uh, essentially a, a, a planet discovery facility, uh, which is used in tandem with NASA's test satellite, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Uh, basically, um, University of Southern Queensland provides backup facilities, and that's exactly what's happened in this particular story. Uh, sorry, you asked me about the star itself, the planet itself, which I'm now getting to. Um, it is called AU Microscopii, uh, which means it's in the constellation of Microscopio. Microscopio. Gosh, I can't even say it. Microscopio. <laughs> AU Microscopii, to give it its Latin pronunciation, or usually known as AU Mic. Um, it's and and that how Australian is that, Fred? <laughs> Mic. And well, it's that, that is yeah, Mick, That's right. She'll be right. It, 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 Australians have a reputation for abbreviating things, and Michael becomes Mick. So this is now Planet Mick. It is Planet Mick. That's right. Um, with um, actually, you're quite right because it's AU Mick. AU is a designator that tells you it's a variable star, um, but it also means Australia. So AU. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's got everything going for it. So there it is. Uh, why is this very? This it's a young variable star. Why is it of interest? Because it has a, a dust. Uh, debris disk around it so it's you know this is what we call a protoplanetary disk our sun had one once upon a time uh, the solar system grew within that uh, as these 
particles of dust and uh, the debris uh, stuck together by this process called accretion. <clears throat> so it's got, um, it, it, it has been known to have this disk of debris, but now what has happened is as, as a planet has been found within that disk. So it's young, as I said, only 20 to 30 million years old compared with the 4.6 billion years of our solar system. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the planet has been discovered by the TESS spacecraft, uh, the transiting exoplanet survey satellite, uh, which noted a dip in the star's brightness as the planet passed in front of it. Uh, so that's a fairly standard process. That's how TESS works, and it's how uh, many of the exoplanets that are being discovered at the moment are being found. But what then was able to happen was that because uh, the University of Southern Queensland has this link with the TESS facility, um, the information was basically uh, passed over to, uh, to the astronomers at, at Toowoomba, USQ, uh, who used their telescopes, which is actually um, it's part of a, uh, a, a support network called Minerva Australis. I can't remember what Minerva is an acronym for, but it's a, it's a fairly large consortium. Uh, and as I said, with telescopes at Mount Kent near Toowoomba. So the uh, USQ astronomers use their telescopes not only to check these measurements of the of the change in brightness of the of the of the star but also to uh, carry out what's called the doppler wobble method which you and i have talked about before yes as well andrew so you use um, the the light from the star uh, you can split it into its component spectrum colors that reveals this barcode of information which is imprinted by the elements in the atmosphere of the star but by making very accurate measurements of these you can you can uh, you can work out the motion of the star itself as it's pulled around by the the planet. And so, uh, you know, our sun has that effect. The sun moves backwards and forwards slightly as, as the different planets in the solar system move around it. Principally, it's Jupiter that, that, that does that, but the other planets mm. have an effect too. Uh, so uh, that is has now been observed with the, uh, the Mount Kent uh, telescopes. And basically, uh, it means that you you actually extract much more uh, information because you can you can determine the mass of the uh, of the transiting planet. You can also determine by looking how far it dips the light of its parent star. You can also determine its size, and that gives you its density, which tells you something about it, its nature. This one is is a Neptune star, a Neptune-sized planet unlikely to be a home for life, but nevertheless part of the giant picture of uh, exoplanets that we are building up now. It's well over 4,000 that have been discovered. So we live in a golden age of exoplanet discovery, and this is just another uh, way in which these things can be, uh, you know, that they can be characterised. Yes, indeed. So they ended up confirming it with both methods, transit and Doppler wobble. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah. I, I know all about the Doppler wobble effect. I missed a short putt on Saturday because of that. <laughs> it's nasty stuff. Oh, yes, you've got to watch out for it on the golf course. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a lot of Doppler wobbling going on. <laughs> it's terrible. It's my excuse for everything. Uh, well, that's a, that's a great discovery, and they're doing some good work up there by the sound of it, Fred. They are. They are. Mm. Um, 
you know, it's a paper that's gone in the journal Nature, which is the the, the leading. Uh, uh, science journal published in the UK. Uh, the, the team from um, it's a very long list of authors in this in this paper, which also includes people from the University of New South Wales. Uh, I noticed Chris Tinney's name's there. Chris is uh, uh, an old colleague of mine, used to be at the AAO. Uh, John T. Horner is um, one of the lead people up at uh, up at uh, Mount Kent Observatory in the USQ. So a lot of friends and colleagues there in this large number of uh, authors uh, for this paper. Jaunty wouldn't be South African, would he? He comes from not very far from where I grew up. He's got an accent that's not that different from mine, believe me. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, Jaunty's, uh, I, I should say, it's very much a northeast of England uh, diminutive, uh, except uh, when you get to Newcastle, it's Jaunty, <laughs> because there's a... Of course it is. Jaunty. Why, Jaunty, man, hey, who are you going on, Jaunty? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, and, and Mount Kent, Mount Kent in one of the most Mount Kent in one of the most horrible parts of Australia, the Darling Downs. What a what a hideous looking <laughs> district. Yeah, I think uh, you better explain that because you might upset. Me. It's it's absolutely beautiful, it rolling is. hills and and green valleys, and it's just glorious. Just a beautiful part of the world. Uh, only just over the border. Why didn't we snaffle that when we drew up the maps, Fred? Oh. I have no idea. <laughs> Probably anyway. we did, actually, yeah. Well, yeah, in New South Wales, the, the state we live in, used to encompass all of Australia right to the West Australian border. And uh, someone decided to carve it up and they gave Queensland the best bit. I'm pretty unimpressed, to be honest. Well, but anyway, that's the way it goes. Yeah. That's the way it goes. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you'd like to become a premium member of the Space Nuts Supercast franchise, well, that sounded serious, uh, you can do that uh, by visiting our website, uh, spacenuts.supercast.tech, and, uh, yeah, read all about it there. There are, um, there are monthly plans. This is, this is if you want to put something back into the podcast, which is completely optional. But as a Supercast member... Uh, you get access to the back catalogue uh, with new episodes every week, uh, weekly new episodes, ex- exclusive bonus um, AMA content, and it's 100% commercial free. So if you'd like to look that up, um, you can go to our website and uh, and check it out. Um, the URL is spacenuts.supercast.tech, uh, but you can also uh, find out how all this works through our um, standard website, spacenutspodcast.com. And uh, thank you to our patrons. Uh, we're going to be adding some um, bonus material in the next week or so. Now, Fred, let's move on to this uh, story that's uh, certainly been hitting the headlines in many, many publications, and that is the collision that's been reported between two black holes which may have caused an explosion of light. Now, uh, I'm guessing that's a little bit more significant than a fireworks display. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, this is a, 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 light, a little bit like the, um, the story we've just talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, the planet discovery. This is a, a highly collaborative event between many different institutions, some of which are very, very different in their in their style of observing, uh, that has made a discovery that is, well, it's a world first. It's the first time 
this sort of thing has been observed, a, a pair of black holes merging, but producing a light signal. So, <clears throat> okay, let's get back to basics. Black holes merging, you basically need a gravitational wave detector. And we now have working gravitational wave observatories. Uh, the LIGO facility in the United States, operated by the National Science Foundation, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And a European version, which is called Virgo, uh, these uh, instruments have been operating together for a number of years now and actually producing gravitational wave uh, detections, most of which are from either merging black holes or merging neutron stars or merging black holes with a neutron star. Uh, and you, yes. can, you can characterize them <clears throat> quite accurately by looking at the, 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 the wave pattern of the gravitational waves as they pass through the Earth. Because what we're talking about here is that slight shaking of space that comes about when uh, 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 when a large mass is accelerated way, way off in the depths of space, but it shakes mm. space around it, that causes waves. It's a bit like dropping a pebble in a pond, uh, that, only a bit like it, but it's a bit like that. Uh, and, you know, you can detect the ripples as they go past. And looking at the details of those ripples is what tells you what you're actually seeing. It is an astounding <clears throat> uh, scientific discipline that has emerged since we've actually been able to detect these gravitational waves. So two black holes merging um, don't cause any light uh, normally because they're black. <clears throat> what they do is they spiral around each other uh, and then uh, merge into a larger black hole, which itself, <clears throat> like the two precursors, is also black, and so you don't get a light flash. Until now, and there's an event, yes. uh, an event which um, I love the name. It's GW190521G. Uh, <clears throat> that tells you it's um, uh, an event, a gravitational wave event that uh, occurred on the uh, 21st of May 2019. So it's taken until now to analyze the results uh, and get them out. But it turns out that on that day and at the time of the event, <clears throat> excuse me, um, another completely different style of telescope, uh, which is at the Palomar Observatory uh, near San Diego. And if I remember rightly, this is based on their Schmidt telescope, which is effectively a twin <clears throat> of the Schmidt telescope we have at Siding Spring Observatory here in Australia, what used to be called the Fort hmm. in Schmidt, uh, two of them. Yep. One in Panama, one uh, here in Australia, <clears throat> now called the 1.2 meter Schmidt. <clears throat> so they, uh, Caltech operate this instrument, um, I, and I'm pretty sure I'm talking about the right telescope. If I'm not, somebody must uh, excuse me. Uh, the Zwicky Transient Facility is essentially uh, a wide field imager that looks for transient events, things that uh, take place over a short length of time. It's named after Fritz Vicky, who uh, is actually the person who discovered dark matter, among other things. He was a, a 20th century astronomer, sadly now no longer with us, but a character and a half, according to all accounts. Um, the ZTF, it's called, the Zwicky Transient Facility, actually observed a flash of light at the same point that this gravitational wave disturbance seemed to come from. And so that uh, 
that gives you essentially a puzzle. You, you can look at the, um, you know, the shape of the gravitational wave measurements. You can determine that what you've seen is not two neutron stars colliding, but two black holes colliding. But then you've got the, uh, the enigma of the fact that they produced a flash. And so um, the authors of the paper that has resulted from this um, suggest that the, the two black holes themselves, which are probably quite large, of order of 10 times the mass of the sun, that sort of uh, size. But they su suggest that these two black holes were in orbit around each other, but together were in orbit around a supermassive black hole. In other words, something at the centre oh. of the galaxy that's millions of times the mass of the sun and, and has its, <clears throat> its accretion disk around. It's got this disk of gas and stars and bits of debris that it's kind of sucking in. And so the suspicion is that these two black holes were just part of the swirling mass of stuff going around the big black hole. When they merged they essentially provided an, an acceleration. The, the merging accelerates the final black hole, which may have um, essentially somehow ploughed, as they, the, the, the words that they use, ploughed through the disk of gas, causing it to light up. It sounds like a complex story, but it seems to be the best that you can do uh, in terms of trying to understand why two merging black holes would give you a light signal. And it's all about the environment that they're in. If they're in a dense environment with, you know, a swirling material going around a, a, a bigger supermassive black hole, then you can create this flash of light. Um, and so uh, what the authors are suggesting is that, you know, given what we now can, can detect with gravitational wave uh, telescopes or detectors, basically, um, we've got a, a new way of essentially studying the black hole population generally. If you look for merging black holes in orbit around bigger ones, which is what this event seems to have been. So uh, they are very excited about this. And, and there is one footnote in the paper, and that is it's kind of a bit of a disclaimer, really, because uh, although the conclusion of this of this paper is that that light flare that was picked up uh, at the Zwicky Transient uh, Facility, uh, <clears throat> although that is very likely to be the result of this black hole merger, um, that there are there are other possibilities, and you know you can imagine that that it could have been just a chance occurrence of two things in the same direction which have a completely independent source. One of them gives a flash, the other gives a gravitational wave uh, signal, but they've nothing to do with each other. Um, I, I think. Yeah, I suppose it'd be very unlikely, but it's I, always a possibility, isn't it? I think it's unlikely too. But yes, they 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 say they cannot completely rule out other possibilities. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but as we've discussed before with the gravitational wave detection capabilities we now have, uh, it's early days in terms of um, what we're finding and, and how we're detecting these things and the combinations of factors that create gravitational waves. So um, as you said, we, we've uh, got signatures that indicate two black holes merging, uh, two neutron stars merging or a neutron star 
merging with a black hole, but this could well be uh, two black holes merging in a dust cloud. So, <laughs> you know, what else could what else could possibly happen? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's uh, either way, whatever the you know whatever the cause is, this is this is. Um, you know, it's it's a big step forward. Uh, I, I think as well, just to perhaps give it a little bit more credibility. I think um, you know, theoretical astronomers have have already realised that maybe such events could happen. That you can get uh, a, a, a black hole merger that gives a light flash before the, this one was detected. In other words, it, you know, these theoretical astronomers, they think way outside the box. They imagine all kinds of scenarios. Uh, and maybe they were thinking about this beforehand. And <clears throat> and what this is, is the first confirmation of that. I'm not quite sure that that was the order in which things happened, but that's very typical of the way astronomy works. Mm, mm, okay. Well, there might be more to learn on this. I'm sure they'll be doing a lot of analysis on that data and keeping their um, eyes open for more gravitational waves and uh, who knows what we'll learn from those, which I think is what I said last time, but that's <laughs> that's the way it is. That's just the way it is at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a sort of a one of the fresher areas in um, science and um and astronomy. So uh, it's definitely a watch this space scenario because um, there seems to be an accelerating amount of data coming out of uh, gravitational wave detection technology. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, and of course, Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you would like to send us a question, uh, and see if you can stump Fred. We'll call it, that's what we'll call the segment from now on, I think. Can you stump Fred? Uh, you can send your questions to us the regular way by uh, messenger or uh, email or something like that via our, via our website. Or you can go to our website and click on the AMA link at the top of the page and record your question in an audio form. We love to hear your voices. We've had some great questions from people and, and you know, it's nice to actually hear from you, literally. So uh, you can do that at spacenutspodcast.com, spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, while you're there, you can check out uh, Astronomy Daily, the, um, the Space Nuts shop, the bookshop. Uh, but the AMA link up the top will give you access to the um, audio recorder you just got to have a microphone on your device, but it'll work on a smartphone, it'll work on a, a tablet, and if you've got a, a laptop, they usually have microphones built in, uh, but if you've got a desktop uh, with a microphone attached, then it'll work on that too. So it's pretty simple, and we'd love to hear from you, quite quite literally love to hear from you. Uh, now, Fred, let's uh, get to a couple of questions. Uh, no audio questions this week, but uh, we have one from a, um, uh, from Alex. Uh, Patunley. I hope I, I have pronounced that correctly. Alex, thanks for your question. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I have a question about exoplanets. If we cannot see exoplanets directly and we measure their mass and yearly orbits via the wobble technique and the dipping light technique, whereby the star's light dims slightly when something uh, allegedly passes in front of it, how can we possibly know if it's one planet's mass we are measuring? Uh, surely a star's wobble could only be linked to a... Um, Con, uh, concentration of mass on one side of the star. Does that uh, even tell us how many exoplanets that star has? And if one was viewing 
our own solar system from Alpha Centauri using the transit technique, then doesn't one need to train their telescope constantly at our star for the best part of 100 years plus uh, in order to record the dips in brightness uh, of most of our planets passing in front of the sun? Logically, uh, one must stare at our sun for a year from Alpha Centauri in order to catch the Earth passing in front of our sun and therefore measure our planet's mass and distance perhaps from the sun. Uh, is that what planet hunting telescopes do? Uh, stare at the same uh, system or patch of sky for over a year? If they don't, then how can we ever hope to discover Earth-like planets that are close, uh, that are not close to their suns? Uh, red dwarfs are not the best candidates for Earth-like planets. Um, is it possible to discover planets in bigger orbits if we haven't had time to watch them for years and years to catch the second dip in brightness? Anyway, would love, uh, would be great to hear uh, your thoughts. Keep up the good work, Alex. It's a long question, and I think we've already touched on it in this episode in terms of um, you know, the wobble technique and the transit technique, but he brings up some good points. How long is long enough <laughs> to make the, uh, the discoveries you hope to make? Exactly. Um, so what, uh, what Alex says is absolutely right. Um, it's not a quick process. Uh, and, okay, let's imagine the scenario that he, he mentions, that if you're looking... <clears throat> at our solar system from, well, let's say the distance of Alpha Centauri, let's say you're looking um, in the direction that all the planets would pass in front of the sun, uh, then the, what what happens is um, you, you you basically have to look for a long time. Uh, you you uh, watch how the star's brightness changes. And in many of the um, planetary systems that have been discovered. Yes, this is what we've seen. We've seen multiple dips, uh, and some of them are different depths. By that, I mean the, the, you're talking about a bigger planet blocking the light of its parent star. So the light dips, and then you know a year later it dips again, but it's a deeper dip this time. And then what you what you wind up doing is recording all these different dips, perhaps from several different planets, you know, if it was our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, the, the gas, the ice giants, um, all of them would give a different depth and they would be on a different cadence. That's to say that they'd have a different spacing in time. Uh, you would need to watch our solar system for a very, very long time to make those discoveries. Uh, you know, 100 years plus, that's right, because you, you know, Jupiter's kind of going around in 12 years. Uh, in, in order to, uh, to validate, what's the word? Validate is the word I'm looking for. In order to validate a planet discovery, I think you have to see it dip, it's like dip three times. I think that's the, the standard. So that's 36 years for Jupiter. Um, and this wow. is why, this is why, um, most of the planets that have been discovered so far are orbiting around red dwarf stars, which are much less massive than our sun. And so the, the planets are closer in. They're, they're nearer to their parent star, so they have shorter years, and that makes them much easier to pick up. It's why we often see things with, with a year of just a few days, uh, because you can pick up this, this dip uh, after not very much length of time in observing them. And... 
Yes, that is one of the limitations. So the test spacecraft, which we talked about a few minutes ago, I think if I remember right, it, it, Alex is right, they stare at a patch of sky uh, looking for the dips in brightness. And I think uh, with uh, TESS, it, it looks at each patch of sky for, if I remember rightly, it's 27 days, which is not a very long time when you're talking about things in orbit around, around stars. But what you can then do is if you find a star that has clearly has a planet passing in front of it, so you've observed one dip, then you can go to other observatories and, uh, you know, de there are now dedicated telescopes which will focus on just one star uh, and look for the, 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 the change in brightness over a long period. And in fact, that's all been turned out to citizen science as well. So amateurs now can do this with their own telescopes. The, the, the um, uh, technology has come on by leaps and bounds. Um, and, <clears throat> OK, the, the, just throwing in a little bit at the end, um, Alex talked at the beginning of his question about the, the Doppler wobble effect, um, the fact that as a, as a planet goes around a star, it pulls the star slightly one, one way and the other. Once again, if you've got multiple planets, that pulling and pushing gets more complicated. And so what you get is what we call a radial velocity curve. That's uh, a, sh a shape of the, the line of sight velocity of the star over time. And with a single planet, it, it will be just a regular up and down curve. But if you've got more than one planet, that gets really complicated. It, it's got little steps in it and jumps and bumps and things of that sort. But once again, you can actually analyze those and tease out exactly what it is you're looking at and discover multiple planets. So it's a long process. It's a complicated process, but it does work. Yes, I yeah we know it does because we've as you said found over four thousand such exoplanets. But it also indicates to me, based on this hit and miss approach, I suppose, that uh, four thousand planets is probably a drop in the ocean in terms of what we've already uh, you know, areas of space we've already observed. There's probably for every planet we have found. Um, you know, if we use our own solar system as an example, uh, probably six or seven more that uh, we haven't seen. Uh, absolutely. Um, that's right. Uh, the smaller ones, I mean, our present techni uh, you know, techniques for determining or discovering planets, they're not sensitive to small planets, particularly small planets 150 million years from their parent star like the Earth is. Uh, the Earth will be very hard to detect um, by the techniques that we're using at the moment. But over time, those technologies and the techniques are improving. So, uh, yes, Earth-like planets are certainly on the agenda. But, as you know, once again, it tends to be red dwarf stars that they are orbiting around. Uh, and, of course, mm. the other thing is red dwarf stars are by far the most common stars in the whole galaxy. So <coughs> that's an, uh, another reason why the, um, why the discovery has been, uh, you know, has been basically skewed towards those kinds of stars. He mentioned Alpha Centauri as an observation point of our uh, solar system and, you know, the, the process and the time it would take to find the planets orbiting our sun. Uh, I, I recall, I think, that we have discovered a planet or maybe more than one planet in the Alpha Centauri region, have we? Yes, that's right, yeah. And, in fact, I think Proxima is supposed to have an Earth-like planet around it. It's not very... Proxima is the nearest of those stars, uh, the Alpha Centauri stars. It's not... I don't think it's a very firm observation, if I remember rightly, but um, there is a suspicion that there's a 
there is a, a, a an Earth-sized planet in orbit around Proxima Centauri. Interesting. Just, All just right. uh, one one more loose end, if I may. Sorry, if you were on Alpha Centauri, you wouldn't see the planets of the solar system crossing in front of the sun because you're in the wrong direction, uh, which is why I think I said, uh, uh, seen from a star at the distance of Alpha Centauri, um, you know, it, uh, the the um, Alpha Centauri is well away from the plane of the solar system. Oh, okay. Yes, of course. You know what I mean? Um, but so, yeah. so you're not going to see examples. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You're never going to see um, the solar system's planets crossing the sun from that direction. But there are other directions that you would see it from. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, Alex, thank you for your question. Uh, well asked, and hopefully we um, gave you an adequate answer here on Space Nuts. Now, uh, Fred, let's move on to our uh, next question. This one comes from uh, John Pitts. Um, hello from Walloon, Queensland. Andrew and Fred, I have a double bunger for you, or maybe it's the same question twice. Uh, there was a recent announcement of evidence that neutron stars may contain something called quark matter in their cores. I hadn't heard of this before. Can you please tell me what quark matter might be? I know it's inside golf balls. Uh, I'm guessing it's an even more dense matter or state of matter than that in the neutron star. Also, in the past week, it's been announced that gravitational waves from a collision between 23 solar mass black holes and an object of 2.6 solar masses. This object uh, is heavier than neutron stars are supposed to be and lighter than any black hole previously observed. It could be a small black hole or a neutron star or something else. Uh, one of the possible something else candidates is a quark star, which I suppose is made entirely of the aforementioned quark matter. How could a quark star differ from a neutron star? Mmm, geez, brought up something very juicy and interesting and something we certainly have never talked about before, John, and that is quark matter and quark stars. So over to you, Fred. <laughs> okay. So um, quarks are... Uh, you know, they are among the, fundament the fundamental building blocks of matter. <clears throat> and so the standard model of matter involves uh, actually 16 particles, 17 if you include the Higgs boson, which is um, the particle that gives all the others mass. So there are four force particles. There are six leptons, which include things like electrons and muons, uh, these are, you know, basically small subatomic particles. And then there are six quarks. <clears throat> and th that, that together makes up the, uh, the 16 um, plus one particles of subatomic matter. What I love about quarks is the names that they've got. These six quarks have got different names. They are up, down, top, bottom, charm and strange. Oh, good grief. Yeah. And they're all different. So they are specifically, you know, ind individually determined um, uh, components of the building blocks of matter. They're what you and I are made of. You've got a strange, mm. you've got a strange quark in your, in your digestive system. It's probably well, well in other places as well. So anyway, quarks are, they're the components of things like protons and neutrons. And that's really the, um, you know, the, the, the nub of the matter when it comes to, to stars. So we recognise um, uh, 
several states of what's called degenerate matter in uh, in astronomy, and they're characterized by they're teenage quarks. Are they? <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed the word there. They're what? The teenage quarks. Teen <laughs> quarks. De- degenerate matter. I wasn't degenerate when I was a teenager. I was a, I was a nice one. <laughs> Pretty sure I was. <laughs> yeah. um, so, okay, what's degenerate matter? It's matter that's in a very unusual state. And, the, you know, the, the, the example that most of us think of are white dwarf stars, which are, <clears throat> um, in fact, that's the end product of the sun. The sun will wind up as a white dwarf star. Something with almost the mass of, a, of, of the sun but uh, which is about the size of the Earth. Uh, so, and, and it's compressed to such a density that it's only the outward pressure of the electrons that is stopping it from collapsing to, a, a, to a, a, a another stage of density. So this is called electron de- degeneracy, when the electrons are what's holding stuff apart. The next stage, uh, if it's more massive than 1.4 times the mass of the sun, then it will continue collapsing until it gets to what we call neutron degeneracy, where just the pressure of the neutrons is stopping it collapsing further. And that's a neutron star. So um, these are, you know, of, of the order of 10 to 20 kilometers across, but once again, with the mass of a star in them. And, he, and exactly um, as, uh, as um, uh, sorry, John was, was saying, sorry, John, I, I mixed you up with Alex for a minute there. Uh, exactly as John was saying, um, that is, that's the, the kind of typical picture of what we imagine to be the, the most dense uh, kind of star. And until now, they have been thought not to exist more than about twice the mass of the sun. And the thinking has been that if you get a neutron star with more than two solar masses of matter in it, it will continue its gravitational collapse. It's the force of gravity that does this, of course, pulls it down to be a black hole uh, and nothing can keep, you know, can, can stop it from collapsing into that. So what's put a spanner in the works, uh, exactly as John says, is uh, observations made recently which seem to suggest that there are neutron stars which are more massive than that two solar mass limit, and and in particular one of a solar mass of 2.6, sorry, a mass of 2.6 solar masses. So what is it? It's somewhere between a black hole and a neutron star, or is it some something else? And that's where the idea of quark stars comes in to, to, to the picture, because um, there is work, uh, this has been done, and thanks, John, for pointing this out, uh, in the University of Helsinki and elsewhere. It's uh, work done by a, a theor- theoretical group there. Um, what they are suggesting is that um, neutron stars might be more complicated than we, we thought. Um, and they, they might have a structure. Now, we know that already from previous work, which suggests that neutron stars in their outer layers have probably got a high proportion of, high proportion of protons as well. Uh, you've got to have protons there somehow uh, because these things are highly magnetic and neutrons are magnetized. Um, so there is the thinking that um, a, a, a neutron star might be a bit like a, you know, an orange with an outer layer that's rich in, in protons. 
uh, and then a neutron, a, a, a neutron core. But the new work suggests that maybe there is more to it than we thought, and they might have a, a quark core at the centre of a neutron star. So you've got this uh, uh, change in density from the outside to the edge, and in the middle you've got you know this really exotic stuff, which is kind of predicted by theory uh, that. Uh, quark matter, things that are only stopped from turning into a black hole by the quarks themselves, the ups, the downs, the bottoms and tops and charms and strange, although it might not be all of them. I'm not uh, enough of a particle physicist to know uh, which, are, you know, which are prohibited and which are allowed. So My, my brain's falling apart. This is, yeah. This it's is new, yeah, great stuff. People have talked about quark stars for a long time, but this seems to be the first time that it's really come into the um, into the regime of something that is worth following up rather than something that is highly speculative. It's still pretty speculative, but uh, it looks as though it's heading for the mainstream. And certainly this uh, group in, in Finland think uh, that quark stars or this exotic state of quark matter uh, might well be a, a, a very likely outcome. Uh, there's a quotation here uh, by um, one of the lead scientists of this work, uh, which is there is still a small but non-zero chance that all neutron stars are composed of nuclear matter alone. What we've been able to do, however, is quantify what this scenario would require. In short, the behaviour of dense nuclear matter would then need to be truly peculiar. For, for instance, the speed of sound would need to reach almost that of light. So this is what they're saying here is this is a scenario where you, where you don't have the quarks in it, where you've just got neutrons. And what it says is you get very peculiar outcomes. So um, I think everybody's leaning towards the idea that maybe, maybe we are starting to discover quark stars. So what? it's possible. Yeah, watch this we, we could reclassify some stars as quark rather than whatever they are at the moment. Rather than neutrons. Yeah, rather than massive neutron stars. That's right. Yeah. Mm, fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, nice to open a new door on Space Nuts too and uh, appreciate the question. Um, thank you. Uh, it was John, wasn't it? Um, thank you, yeah. John. And if it's any consolation, Andrew, it makes my brain hurt as well. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it, You're starting to get into the um, – well, I suppose this is – you wouldn't call it science fiction, but it's, it's science theory. Um, but it's now starting to sort of crack into the reality side of things and uh, may become a – yeah, as you said, may become a mainstream science and, um, if they can uh, make some more discoveries and more you know, understand more about what's going on it's uh it, it's just one of the fascinating things about astronomy it just keeps throwing up all these curveballs that you've got to try and figure out and um, more and more questions to answer <laughs> but that that's what it's all about you keep going until there are no questions left to answer which could take a long time yeah i think that'll outlast you and i <laughs> yeah most most possibly um, but anyway, thanks, John. Appreciate the question and um, hope you're well up in sunny Queensland and staying safe. Um, that's just about it for us for another week. Fred, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Always good to stretch the brain. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Indeed.
feels quite stretched. Yes, all right. Catch you very soon. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And uh, don't forget to uh, visit us if you're a Facebook follower uh, on the Space Nuts Facebook page. We have quite a following there. But you might also like to join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook and talk to each other because that's what the group was created for so that uh, Space Nuts fans could all get together and chit-chat about astronomy and uh, share their uh, astronomical photographs and um, just uh, articles that they've come across. It's uh, it's a great platform to keep in touch with each other, so you might want to consider that. Or you can do what I do and wait till the next edition of Space Nuts. I'll see you then. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.